Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device, wherever you are in the world, via podcast. This program is produced by 2SER 107.3 in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. Well, have you been keeping your eye on oil? Last Monday, the price of US crude dropped into the negatives for the first time in history, as global storage practically ran out, forcing storage providers to sell off their surplus stock. It's another example of the Twilight Zone-esque economics we've all been bearing witness to these last few weeks. In Australia, a country with the keys to the second largest accessible reserves of iron ore in the world, the fifth largest reserves of coal, and significant gas resources, it isn't hard to see how many people see commodities as the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. But is that realistic? And what lies ahead for oil, coal and other commodities? To help answer these questions, and maybe even pose a few more, is our panel. Dr Christina Nikotopoulos is a senior lecturer in the Finance Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School, as well as a leading researcher into energy finance and commodity markets. Professor Warren Hogan is the former Chief Economist for Big Four member ANZ, and now an industry professor at the UTS Business School. Matthew Doman is the Director of External Affairs for the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association. And Greg Boosen is the Secretary for the CFMU's Mining and Energy Western Australian District. Thank you all for joining us. So, Christina, we'll start with you. Airlines are grounded, people are at home, and on the whole, the world is using a lot less fuel going about their daily lives. And on last Monday, the benchmark price for US crude plummeted to negative $35 a barrel because of a global storage shortage. So a lot of your research is to do with the price dynamics for crude oil. What sort of situation is the global industry in now when we're wedged between a serious lack of demand and realistically nowhere to put what we've already got? Uh, no doubt COVID-19 is having a severe impact on oil markets. Oil demand fell very suddenly and drastically in a system with limited storage capacity and also not enough time for the industry to slow down production. With overwhelmed storage facilities in Cushing Storage Hub in Oklahoma, which is currently near capacity, oil producers were forced to pay uh, buyers to take the oil they could not store. This is what these negative prices mean. Looking at the financial component of this system, which supports the trading of oil and the hedging of oil, uh, this uh, system is also affected. And for the first time in history, New York Mercadolic Change had to deal with negative future prices for the West uh, Texas Intermediate May 2020 contract. This was the front month deliverable contract. Even though most of these uh, contracts can be cash settled by closing ahead of expiration, uh, with typically only 1% going ahead with physical delivery, what we saw happen on the 20th of May was illiquidity in the market, combined with the limited oil storage capacity, forced again holders of these contracts to pay the sellers to take hold of the contracts. And Warren, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's obviously the the situation that we 
uh, or the, the industry finds itself in. And I don't think we can underestimate just how sudden the decline in demand has been and, and how unexpected it was. I mean, no one really thought seriously about this just sort of eight weeks ago. So to think um, of the speed of, of, of decline in demand for oil across the board from um, aviation through to domestic um, petrol and so forth has been phenomenal unprecedented really um and and the, and the supply just can't react that quickly um so the 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 buffer in the market um the shock absorber if you will is is storage and it is something that can be stored and there is a lot of storage capacity around the world but uh as we've seen that that storage is is filled up very quickly and become ex- extraordinarily expensive so um as I like to say, the best place to store oil is in the ground. And really now it's all about um, supply being cut. And of course, um, that in itself has a whole range of different issues associated with it, not least the um, fun and games going on between the OPEC group and uh, and Russia. Um, so the market's got a lot of dynamics at play at the moment. Um, but the biggest issue has been just the stop in demand. And is it possible to model a situation like this? Or as you've already said, is it just so unprecedented that there's very much you can do to um, to kind of midgetate the impact of it? Um, look, from my point of view, the way this has played out is it would actually be quite feasible to model it um, in broad terms. Um, uh, you know, the kind of probabilities put on what we've just seen would be um, very, very low, I would have thought. Um, but yeah, not not impossible to model. But um, the reality is, is is that this is not an industry that um, operates day by day. Um, it, it is very long leads and lags from investment, even through production, ramp up and pull back. Um, so even even uh, well, this is the situation we find ourselves in now. With is on the upside, which is when demand comes back and and not wanting to have supply and production too too weak for a sudden startup in demand. So we've sort of got the problem uh, with, a, with a heads up uh, that we had before in reverse. Um, so we know that demand's going to come back and uh, it could come back quite sharply at some stage uh, when borders are opened. Um, and that's going to be something the industry will be madly modelling right now. Uh, considering this, this common stances, I think what oil producers have to consider very seriously is that they have to cut production because indeed there is a growing concern that negative prices may come back. And uh, I think Warren mentioned uh, at some point, and I agree with him, that the best storage facilities for oil at this moment is to leave it in the ground. And we'll get back to the possibility or the inevitability of a recovery in a little bit, but I'll just cross over to you for a sec, Matt. Now, your organization's membership account for 90% of the country's petroleum production and oil exploration. So how are domestic producers looking at the global situation at the moment? Well, we do live in interesting times, uh, that much we can say. What we've seen uh, in the course of this year really is a whole combination of factors, both on the supply and on the demand side. And uh, the, the geopolitical uh, factors that at play on the uh, supply side has seen uh, a glut of uh, production coming into the market. Coinciding with a market demand scenario that was already soft prior to the COVID crisis, we saw mild, win- mild weather, uh, particularly in North Asia, this, uh, this northern winter. So demand was already somewhat low. 
and now with the contraction in economic activity and energy use during the COVID uh, pandemic, we are seeing a dramatic uh, contraction in demand. So uh, the oil price, uh, temporarily at least, is at very low levels. For our industry, uh, we have to uh, plan for and uh, manage our business through ups and downs in commodity prices. So uh, our industry is used to that. However, we make our plans around much longer term projections uh, and it remains our belief that the, the longer term energy demand for all types of energy, renewable energy, uh, oil and gas, uh, and even coal, although we do see coal with a declining share, um, but we see strong energy demand internationally and at home. So we plan our projects uh, for, for that reality and uh, with a 30, 40 year timeframes. So this is a difficult moment for anyone whose revenue depends on or is linked to the oil price at the moment. Um, but it's not a situation we see lasting forever. Uh, and we plan our activities very much for the longer term. Mm. And according to the Department of Energy and the Environment, in 2017 to 2018, domestic refineries imported 75% of their feedstock. So how big is the actual domestic industry itself as opposed to the crude product that is imported in to be refined domestically? Well, you're right that we are now importing the vast majority of the oil that we use in Australia. Now, this century, since the year 2000, we've seen a very significant downturn in local oil production. So in the year 2000, which turned out to be uh, certainly the most recent peak, we, we produced over 200 million barrels of oil, 214 million barrels of oil. In 2018, that had fallen to 41 million uh, barrels of oil. So an 80% decline in production, in production here in Australia at a time when our... Uh, uh, our demand for oil, our use of oil, um, continues to be strong. It's not growing as strongly as uh, as it may have been other times, but we're still using a lot of oil and a lot of gas in our day-to-day lives. So um, we're uh, only at the moment in, in oil able to produce around 20%, a little over 20% of the oil that we use. On the other side of our industry, on, in gas, we've seen very strong increases in gas production. You've mentioned it's a priority of yours and by extension the federal governments to give our domestic producers a little bit more of a share of at least the domestic market, if not the international. Um, Now, in fact, at the moment, Singapore, or at least by 2019, Singapore was supplying about 50% of our liquid fuels from overseas. And it's a very interesting perspective to now look at the situation Singapore is in now um, where the country's in lockdown, it's had a huge spike in cases over the last few days and weeks. So it does raise the question of if our international suppliers suddenly have a crisis, as in the one we're seeing now, what happens to our supply lines? So Warren, what sort of position does such a dependency upon overseas imports for such a vital resource mean at a moment like this, when every country in the world is in a state of economic lockdown? Yeah, well, the the the, the trade uh, routes are still open, and uh, I think we're securing oil successfully. In fact, Australia's actually got quite a, a good history of um, being able to access 
oil um, over over many generations, actually. So we've been uh, able to develop diverse suppliers. Um, the government keeps an eye on the market. The industry, I think, works collaboratively. Um, and we have a great track record. I think the, the recent announcement from the government to take advantage of these low prices and take some pl- some supply out of the market and put it into a um, into a, a strategic reserve is a good idea um, although ultimately what really needs to be addressed there is a domestic capacity rather than their current plan which is to build that in uh, uh, in the US where there, there is that storage capacity um, courtesy of the US government um, but look uh, it, it does highlight that um, we are vulnerable as we're sort of identifying in a whole range of different supply chains. Um, and I think it highlights the vulnerability from more than just the perspective of, of a pandemic. Um, what happens if the geopolitical situation deteriorates? I think there's can be little doubt that one of the hotspots in the world is, is, is on our doorstep um, here in, in, in um, the Asian region, uh, whether it be the South China Sea or the Straits of Malacca, where quite a deal of the world's oil passes through. Um, so I think all of these um, events of the last couple of months, both in the oil market, um, but more generally, I think put a lot of weight behind the thinking that countries need to be um, more st- sort of economically re- resilient um, to uh, their international supply chains. And I think we're going to hear this as a theme across many industries for a number of years to come. And uh, of course, energy is absolutely a critical in- in- industry. And uh, I can imagine buying up right now would be a really smart move because we're a member of the International Energy Agency. Um, now, there are obligations as a member of that organization. One of them is that you have to have at least 90 days of liquid fuel in reserves. Department of Environment and Energy in April of 2019, they showed that Australia has a current reserve of about 18 days of petrol, 22 days of diesel and 23 days of jet fuel. So we do have very low reserves. It seems like the smart option would be to shore up our domestic reserves. Matt, could this be an opportunity to promote domestic production in the way that the United States have been doing, where a lot of their domestically produced oil goes straight into the reserves? We do think there's a need uh, and very strong benefits to Australia of having greater local production, um, even if that production is exported uh, in times of uh, disruption to trade. If you are an exporter, then you have got some local production to fall back on. In Australia at the moment, we, we have very little local local production to, to fall back on. So it is a good thing that our international trading relationships are proving to be robust, both in the export of our natural gas resources uh, and an import of the uh, of the majority of the oil that we use. So um, we, we believe that uh, those trading arrangements are, are, are robust and will stand... Uh, the test of time and, and stress tests as stress tests such as the current environment. Now, Greg, in your position as a secretary for the CFMEU's Western Australian Mining and Energy Division, you must have a very first-hand account of what the impacts of COVID-19 have been upon your union membership. The effect that's had on, firstly, international people at FIFO internationally, that on their days off they live in either New Zealand or they live in Bali or something like that, some of those people had to relocate to WA at short notice or, on the other hand, had to stay in their, the country they were at and exhaust their um, leave entitlements. Uh, the second wave was then on the um, interstate FIFO that had exemptions for a while. 
but since they've closed the borders, those people have had to relocate, um, commit, leave their families and commit to moving west and um, working in the Pilbara for their, and accommodate some roster changes so that they could work and um, either travel from Perth, commute from Perth on a fortnightly basis or live directly in the Pilbara. So those people have had to, international, interstate FIFOs have had to relocate, leave their family and loved ones behind and uh, settle in WA for a period of time. You know, some have committed three to four months. So that's the major change that we've seen on the rail front. And uh, have many CFMEU members been voicing their concerns about obviously isolation from their family, which is a really big mental health concern at a time like this, but also the possibility that over the next few months there could be potentially long-term job losses across a lot of sectors. Have you heard much from the membership regarding those concerns? Uh, well, currently uh, my main membership concern is you know they're starting now. They've been here between four to six weeks um, on a continuous basis now. Um, in the Pilbara is a remote place, and while they're on shift, they are having trouble accessing um, means of contacting their um, loved ones on a regular basis. So it's more that at the current time, it's more the mental health issue um, concern of now, you know, long periods of time being away from their families. Um, so like I said, some people, you, you know, you commit for three months, but how long? You know, it's the uncertainty for everyone, I suppose. How long is it going to last? So. Um, we are working with some with Rio Tinto in particular, trying to get some um, upgrading of some uh, some communication means, so with some upgraded Wi-Fi and um, video conferencing and stuff like that. So hopefully that those uh, updates will take effect shortly and help these people um, manage the situation. So do you think that maybe in the next few months there might start to be, particularly from a union perspective, a little bit more of a debate or a dialogue on how FIFO workers work and live? I, I think um, probably this highlights the reliance of some of these, you know, in remote areas, the reliance on FIFO. Um, yeah, I think it might just... Uh, some people might reset. Um, some of these people that are away from their families may decide at the end of this that um, they're concerned that this will be, you know, may not be a one-off, there may be some more, and will they consider their options going forward? Um, will, will companies reconsider? When, these are the questions. Will companies reconsider because um, how they leave themselves exposed to, you know, if something else similar like this happens again, then um, we have to can take uh, put on likewise measures, then how do we manage that going forward? I think, there's, I think both parties will be looking at it maybe in a different light. And uh, we'll jump across to other commodities. The big news today is NAB's 51% slump in first-half profits, and the Australian share market has been somewhat dragged down by the big four banks. Now, on the subject of banks and mining, Warren, uh, ANZ's position as the largest lender to coal mines in Australia was challenged by a leaked email to the ABC that, that they plan to slash more than $700 million in thermal coal loans by 2024. Now, in the past, NAB... And the Commonwealth Bank have also made assurances that they'd exit the industry by 2030 and 2035, respectively. Why are the big four banks getting out of coal? And is it more than just a stance on environmental issues? Oh, well, when it comes to banks, it has to be more than just a stance on some sort of issue. It's going to be a reflection of a view on the economics of the the industry, um, of course. Um, I think there is 
um, definitely concern um, within the banks here in Australia um, about um, how how it looks to be to be funding um, these industries. But of course, um, they have commitments that exist to firms and and, and contracts and so forth. Um, so I don't think they're just pulling back purely on a view that uh, they don't want to be seen to be lending to, to coal um, and for the reasons that you mentioned. They're, they're taking a view on, 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 on the demand for coal over the longer term uh, would be my view. Um, you know, within that frame of also not wanting to um, uh, be seen to be doing something that's, uh, you know, perceived to be at the detriment of the environment as well. So it's strictly business, so to speak. Oh, well, it's strictly business when you think about the frame of why they think about it. They are a business. They're a bank. Uh, I don't think you can put it in any other terms. Um, I think what I'm getting at is they're not just doing it because they believe they're doing the right thing. They think they're doing it because they believe the economics of the industry um, has moved because the demand for coal is going to come down um, and therefore it's not as you know favourable to be – or there isn't that required funding for the industry um, going forward. Um and so I don't think it's just a a view a view on the the um, merits of the industry. Um, you know, will ultimately always come back to an economic consideration. Quite rightly too. Uh, now Deloitte recently released a study on the economic impacts of COVID nineteen. One thing that they've particularly raised is that it'll be a good idea to keep your eye on iron ore uh, for at least the moment. Now. Is it hard to build a case for economic recovery until panic selling on share markets stops? Or is the case going to be reversed, that the panic selling is only going to stop when there are indications that the world's economy is starting to start up again? Uh, look, I think the, 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 the economic recovery from, from, from this uh, pandemic um, is going to be determined by two things. One um, is is when the government can start to ease back on uh, the various restrictions that have been put in place on on, on society and, and and by definition, therefore, the economy. Um, we're looking at some of those things happening now. Most of them are more to sort of do with social issues like uh, gatherings of two or more and sports that you can play and recreational activities, this sort of thing. The next phase will be on domestic restrictions around large gatherings such as in you know pubs and entertainment venues and then i think most people think the 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 final thing to be lifted will be international travel um that will be the most important driver of the economic recovery and then the second major factor is going to be the nature and shape of government policy um that we see and and that that comes in two forms as we sit here now one is the, the, the programs they've already put in place, such as the JobKeeper and the Boost to JobSeeker um, and, and all the various other things that state and federal governments have done, most of them have a hard finish. So, you know, are we just going to stop them quickly? And what does that mean for the economy? Is that going to just cause problems then? Or are they going to taper them gradually as the economy recovers? Um, and then the other thing is, is are there new policies that once, once sort of the restrictions come down, if the economy is looking soft, can the government put in place more stimulus to help boost spending in the economy and really get the thing sort of going, if you will. So I think they're the defining characteristics. I don't think it's got much to do with the markets. The markets will, uh, this is not so much a financial event, uh, such as what we saw in the global financial crisis of 2008-9. This is, you know, a, an economic uh, and healthy health issue. Um, and the financial markets will respond to what's happening in the economy um, one of the reasons the financial markets have done so well in the last month or so has been the extraordinary amount of uh, monetary support um, across the world 
um, mostly in the form of governments buying um, debt securities in the market and providing liquidity to the market. And that's put a, a bit of a floor under equity values and, and seen those markets all settle down, which I think most people would re- regard as desirable. But it won't be the markets that drive the recovery. It's going to be the um, government policies that are going to be most important. Now, a lot of people will be looking to China over the next few months to kickstart that global recovery. Now, on the subject of mining and commodities, in 2012, according to the RBA, mining investment had increased fivefold from its levels in 2004 when the mining boom really kicked off due to China's massive urbanization. Now, many investors and, and industries are going to be looking to China and Asia to help kickstart a second trade boom, as they did in the early 2000s. So is it realistic to expect demand from China to be that light at the end of the COVID tunnel, so to speak? Well, I think what we're seeing in, in energy markets is uh, sustained growth in energy demand uh, across many developing economies. And it's driven by improving standards of living. It's also driven by the need for cleaner energy, uh, the need uh, and China is a prime example to uh, reduce air pollution, particularly the, uh, the, the the particulate pollution that comes from coal-fired generation around China's major cities is, is, is well documented. So shifting to cleaner energy sources, be that natural gas, be that increased use of renewable energy is driving big changes in, in, our, broader, uh, in our broader industry. I think you know, China was clearly... A major driver of the of the global recovery out of uh, the financial crisis of of two thousand and eight nine that they deployed one of the largest fiscal stimulus programs uh, the world had ever seen at that stage, um, and that benefited Australia greatly. That fiscal stimulus was very much aimed at domestic um, infrastructure. Uh, it was metal intensive. Uh, it was quite energy intensive as well. Um, and it, it drove uh, a broad-based recovery in the Chinese economy that spilt over across the region and, and had a huge impact on Australia throughout our, our natural resource industries. That is unlikely to happen in this occasion uh, for, for a range of reasons. One is the Chinese just don't have the, the same um, scope within you know their domestic balance sheets, um, whether that be um, state and federal government or whether that be um, state-owned enterprises, they experienced a huge run-up in debt as a result of that fiscal stimulus program, um, which was almost a decade ago, sort of eight, nine years ago. And they just don't have that same capacity, or I don't think they feel that they have that same capacity. Oh, we're all hopeful, but I, I'm, I have a bit of a concern. My, my issue is we've been continually churning out iron ore, um, to a market that's, um, you know, maybe getting saturated, reaching saturation point, and um, I'm concerned that coming out of this with you know job losses in other countries, um, a shrinking demand because people around the world are unemployed or whatever, um, what is that going to do to the market? Are we going to have a glut? That's my main concern. But we're all hopeful that when we come out of this, things return to the way they were. But I'm a bit of a, uh, I've got another. My worry is with maybe the opposite in the iron ore industry. Oil producers must cut production. It's very critical because uh, there are concerns that these negative prices may come back at, at this stage until we see how fast the, the recovery process it will go. Okay, we know quite a lot of economies they start opening up 
or they're planning of opening up, until we actually see that next stage unfolding, uh, they should try to leave it in the ground as much as they can. Well, you heard it here first, black gold seems to have lost its shine. The experts have spoken and it seems for the moment the best place to be storing your oil is right where you found it, in the ground. Only time will tell whether commodities will be able to lift Australia out of these economic doldrums, but for economists like Warren and Christina, they'll serve as a barometer for how quickly and effectively the world's economies will be able to restart. And for people in the industry, such as Matt and Warren, it's a lot more than just macroeconomics. That's about it for today's show. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Christina Nikotopoulos, Professor Warren Hogan, Matthew Doman and Greg Booson. Think Business Futures is recorded at the studios of 2SER Sydney and produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman, and I'll see you again here next week.